Hi, my name is Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote. This podcast has been brought to you by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. To learn more, visit www.thecgo.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of The Great Antidote. When you listen to this, it will be the new year, but right now we're still recording in 2020. I'm excited to have Ron Bailey on the podcast today. I'm glad that he's the first episode of the year because he's Mr. Optimistic. As many of you know, I typically start the podcast by asking our guests what is the most important thing that people my age or my generation should know, but we don't. And many of them have said, especially economists, that things are constantly getting better. And as hard as that is to believe, it is true. Well, Ron is the guy who actually backs those claims with data, and he does so beautifully in this new book that he co-authored with Miriam Tupi at Cato Institute called 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know. Ron is the science correspondent for Reason, where he writes a weekly science and technology column. He's the author of the book, quote, at the end of doom, environmental renewal in the 21st century, and, quote, and libertarian biology, the moral and scientific case for the biotech revolution. Welcome. Welcome, indeed. I'm delighted to be with you. Two quick things, though. One is it's liberation biology, not libertarian biology. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I can see. I can see how you can make that mistake. Oh, yeah, I knew that in my head (laughs) that's it's that's fine uh and two i don't really think of myself as an optimist i think of myself as a realist and the data that we provide in uh, 10 global trends is just flat out pure old plain vanilla data now if you want to say that the world is because the data indicates that the world is getting to be a better place well that's fine that's not optimism though that's realism yeah i mean it is realism but I think it contrasts so starkly with everything else that everyone is saying all the time that it makes it seem so optimistic in that context. And I think that's what it is. I, I think that's probably the case. And, but I, my hope is, and the hope of my co-author as well, Marion Tupi, is that what will happen is, is that people will read this book and get the data and understand better about the actual trends on the planet and then, and that way, we'll be able then to focus more on the things that aren't going right. But you really can't fix the world until you know what the actual state of the world is. And the problem is that so many people are afraid that things are terrible that I, they get, I think they get confused and uh, become disheartened. And what we're trying to do is, no, 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 you have no idea how much progress, apparently you have no idea how much progress has been made over the last two centuries. And soldier on, things are going to get better. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to ask you, and I'm really interested to see what your response is going to be. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Well, one of the things I that I, I looked at were, were some polling data, for example, uh, where you where uh, it was a, a recent poll by uh, Cornell University where they were looking at 
uh, how younger folk, uh, people between 18 and 29, were feeling. And 67% of them apparently felt like they were fearful about the future, fearful about the future of the United States. And, you know, given the recent politics, I can see why that might be. But I also think, think that encompasses, if you will, certain kinds of, of uh, larger trends, environmental trends, for example, economic trends. And I think that the most important thing is, is that the fears are overblown, that the world is likely to become, not likely, will become a lot uh, better. In fact, the thing that your generation doesn't know is, and I'm really envious of this, is that you're going to be uh, living on a richer, cleaner, more peaceful planet by the middle of the century, and it's just going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to that. Well, let's dig in. Looking at your book, it's so beautiful. It has 10 sections, about 10 different trends, and it includes charts and graphics, and they're easy to look at, they're easy to understand, and they're well-sourced. And it includes all the information that you would need to understand. It's easy to read through, but it's also easy to flip through and quickly get to information that you need. So I think anyone could benefit from reading it or even just looking at it. Could you tell us a little bit about why you and Miriam decided to write the book? Well, uh, you mentioned one of my er earlier books, for example, and I've been following environmental trends as a science correspondent and and a a PBS television producer part of my life uh, for decades now. And uh, what... let me give you a little background of my background of how this came to be, how I came to become interested in these topics and have been pursuing them for decades now. When I was a college student back in the 1970s, where we you know, had mastodon steaks at the cafeteria, uh, I was reading and being taught uh, a series of books like The Limits to Growth, which came out in 1972, The Population Bomb in 1968 by Paul Ehrlich, for example, and Silent Spring uh, by Rachel Carson. And my professors were teaching me, and I, you know, I was an 18-year-old student, that basically my world was in terrible shape, that massive famines were going to be occurring very shortly in, the, in my lifetime, that hundreds of millions of people were going to starve to death, that, uh, that uh, to- toxic chemicals were going to create massive waves of, of cancer epidemics, and, and so forth. And basically, my future was extremely bleak. Well, 20 years later, I'm working as a reporter uh, for Forbes magazine. And I look around, and not only did none of those things happen, but the world was in a lot better shape. And so I thought, well, this is an op- interesting opportunity. Why don't I go back and reread these books, and then I will go to the people, if they're still alive, and, and except for Rachel Carson, they were, and I will I interview them and write an article about what they say about the books and, and their predictions and, and what happened to the predictions. And naively at the time, I was thinking, well, most of these people are going to go, wow, it's so great we were wrong. Oh, thank you, you know, for, Ron, for, for reminding people that. Turns out that's not what happens. Uh, I interviewed Paul Ehrlich, the author of The Population Bomb, and he assured me that he had only gotten his timing wrong about the hundreds of millions of people who are going to die in massive famines. And this was in 1990, thereabouts. And he uh, 
assured me that the massive famines would occur between the year 2000 and the year 2010. Uh, then I went to MIT and hung out with the folks who had written the pot, uh, who had written the limits to growth. Spent the day going through their charts and graphs, and being an annoying journalist, say, "But you did say here." And eventually, one of them turned to me and said, "Well, perhaps we overemphasize the uh, natural resources side." By which he meant that, well, yes, it's true we didn't run out of natural resources like we said we would, and but there are other things to worry about. And so I discovered is that that essentially a lot of the doomsaying, if you will, in these predictions wasn't really based on science. It was based on a kind of ideology of doom. And that really piqued my interest. And I've been following that ideology and those kinds of predictions ever since. So so this book is the latest, uh, if you will, <laughs> Attempt to address those those kinds of, uh, if you will, negative uh, doomsaying kinds of predictions about the future by just saying, look, here's the actual data of what's happened. I think it does a really good job of that. In the title of the book, you say that everyone will benefit from reading the book and everyone will get something out of it, but the target audience is smart people. So what do you mean by that? And why do you think that smart people need this book more than others? Well, everyone needs it, and and I, I I will say this: I I am a capitalist. You you know, basically, you can't have too many copies. Makes a wonderful Christmas gift, New Year's gift, bar mitzvah, wedding. You can't have too many copies. But that being said, the the reason we were focusing on smart people, and like I say, everyone, whether you think of yourself as smart or not, is that smart people, of course, are the sort of people who attend to the news who pay attention to the problems of the world, who worry about the problems of the world and are trying perhaps to figure out how to solve them. And so what happens is, is that because they attend to news and news is almost always things that is going wrong, not things that's going right. Or another way to put it is that the fact that a house burned down is on the evening news whereas the fact that 10 new ones were built over the last six months is never in the news. Bad things happen fast. Progress t takes a longer, slower, inexorable time. So people pay attention to the bad news. And so that I think that because smart people are, are the sorts of people who are absorbing information, looking around all the time for new information, is that they will get, uh, I would argue, a a misconception about how the actual state of the world is going. And that's why we wanted to focus on them, because they're the people who have been absorbing all this information about the terrible things in the world and not realizing the background progress that, or, or, or overlooking the background progress, which is actually the more important story of, uh, of humanity. That's crazy. I was just reading this study done by a scholar at Dartmouth who found that 91% of the U.S. media coverage about COVID was negative, which contrasts with 50 or 60% of scientific coverage about COVID. You know, the average person doesn't really pay attention to that stuff. That's such a big contrast between what people are seeing and what's actually going on. It's not just bad, bad, bad all the time. There is some good news. Again, it's the, it, you put your finger on it, though. It, it is the problem that we are, we are currently confronting. And again, and it's hard not to, to it's, not, it's very hard for people to step back and go, 
well, what else is going on? One of the, and I'm working on an article now, actually looking at uh, the enormous amount of biomedical progress that has occurred because of the pandemic. Uh, it, the, I, 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 I perhaps I'll, you will, we'll talk about this later in, in the course of the 21st century. But my suspicion is uh, that, that the COVID uh, pandemic is probably the last pandemic because uh, humanity has learned so much about how to address and handle these problems uh, because of this. It was, a, it was a tremendous failure on the part of, uh, frankly, our, 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 our government leadership in this case. They could have done a much better job than they did, in my humble opinion. But but the fact of the but the fact of the matter is is that creating uh, you know identifying a pathogen uh, and then creating two highly effective vaccines in less than a year is genius. It's amazing. It's a it's a triumph of human ingenuity coupled with uh, uh, if you will uh, market savvy. It, it's just an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, I mean. Two close friends of our family got vaccinated the other day because one of them is a nurse and the other is a PA and they both work in hospitals. It's just crazy to think that maybe in June, that could be the fastest time ever. But June is still about six months away and people are getting vaccinated this very minute, which is so incredible and inspiring. And it makes me somewhat disillusioned with what everyone keeps saying about things being so bad. I mean, it goes right along with the theme of your book. But the fact that we can do so much in so little time and the fact that this might be the last pandemic we ever see, that's an incredible idea. And I don't think anyone 20 years ago or even a few years ago could have imagined that. Well, no, I, it, I think it's quite true in a certain sense that uh, if this pandemic had hit 20 years ago, we wouldn't have had the bio, biotechnological tools and knowledge that we have now that made it possible to address it so rapidly. So we are in a, in, a, in a very good spot. So let's jump into the first trends of your book. You start with The Great Enrichment. Can you describe that to us a little bit? Well, that's a title that we steal from an economist named Deirdre McCloskey, uh, where she is basically pointing out how much more wealthy people are relative to our uh, ancestors of uh, two centuries ago and before. What we're looking at as data is basically what you find is the normal state of humanity, the natural state of humanity up until the, the 19th century, basically, was abject, ignorant, violent poverty. Uh, people were living on less than $400 a day for almost all of human history uh, per person and considerably less for most people. And again, we, we cite the data and show how that was calculated and so forth. But since, let's say, 1820 or so, what's happened is that the global economy has increased 100-fold, and while world population has increased 8-fold, which, in, which indicates that people are vastly wealthier. Again, not everybody, all the time, but the average uh, wealth on, on the planet has increased enormously over that period of time. And, it, it, and we need to keep that in mind. And then also in the Great Enrichment, we, we just make some very easy extrapolations on what is likely to occur over the rest of this century. And uh, it looks like the economy is going to grow at least tenfold again to over a quadrillion uh, dollars, uh, which indicates that something like a per capita income in real dollars 
for uh, on planet Earth would be about $100,000 per person. It's about $15,000 per person now. Again, not equally distributed, and that is a problem. But if I may, then I'll go to the second one, which is what we is the end of poverty, because that's the flip side of the great enrichment. Because you could imagine that you know uh, the top one percent got all the great enrichment. What we're showing here is that that's not true. Is uh, using a measure that the World Bank came up with is essentially uh, you live in absolute poverty if you live on less than a dollar ninety per day per person. That's a a, a, a defined. Uh, uh, measure that the World Bank came up with some years ago. And what, what we have data showing is, again, the flip side of the great enrichment is that around 1820 or thereabouts, something like 90% of people on the planet lived on less than $1.90 per day, 90%. Then it took up until 1980, thereabouts, for that to drop to from 90% to 45%. But since 1980, it has dropped vastly more steeply than that. And now the latest data, though it's been an uptick because of the, of the pandemic, but the data we had you know, prior to the pandemic is that uh, absolute poverty, living on less than $1.90 per day, has dropped to around eight, about 8% of the world's population. And uh, we extrapolate those trends and we think that by 2030, it'll be 5%. And in, in, in fact, uh, absolute poverty, which is not, you know, which is a measure, may be entirely gone by 2040 thereabouts. So that's the flip side of it is not not everybody got rich, but so many people got lifted out of of uh, really terrible poverty over the last two centuries. And we want that to be acknowledged and, and celebrated. And it's so amazing even listening to you repeat those numbers again. That's insane. I don't think anyone could have imagined this at all. And honestly, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around it. I talked with Deirdre McCloskey not too long ago about the great enrichment, and she told me and explained to me that one of the causes was a massive change in people's perception of innovation and attitude towards innovators, and that change, that specific change, is what triggered all this growth. What do you think about that idea? I, Deirdre and I have a slight disagreement with that. I'm much more of what they would call an institutionalist. I think that what what happened is uh, almost by accident, a portion of humanity invented uh, the institutions that basically undergird modern democratic uh, free market capitalism. And those institutions enabled innovators to finally take off. Uh, to, if I may, very briefly... Uh, I've always liked the way that Jonathan Rauch has described those institutions. And he basically says that uh, around, let's say, uh, 1800, uh, a few places in the world, Britain, the Netherlands, the United States, uh, created the the Enlightenment institutions of democracy, which is how we decide uh, who gets to wield legitimate power. Uh, uh, Free market capitalism, which is how we decide who gets what and, and therefore reward innovators. But then a third and very crucial leg of that of that stool uh, for creating the institutions that make uh, human flourishing possible uh, is what he calls liberal science, 
And by, by liberal science, he means basically radical uh, free press. Everybody gets to criticize everybody else. Nobody is an authority who has the absolute truth. And essentially, uh, liberal science goes from the, 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 the most ridiculous activist pamphlet all the way to peer-reviewed science. But the critical thing is everybody gets to criti- criticize everybody else. No one can say this is the truth. And, that, and therefore, it's underpinned, if you will, by a notion, a radical notion of tolerance, where another way I put it is, is I may not have access to transcendent absolute truth, but I'm pretty damn sure that you don't either. So why don't we agree to leave each other alone? And so with those three things, democracy, um, uh, uh, free market capitalism, and liberal science combined together around the uh, 19th century, and that is what I think underpins uh, the great enrichment. I'm having a really hard time figuring out where I lie on this whole what causes the great enrichment thing. But I feel like both kind of make sense. I don't think it's one or the other. I think that Deirdre's, I think that Deirdre's notion of bourgeois virtue comes out of those institutions. She thinks that the bourgeois virtues created those institutions. It's a, I, I understand that distinction. It sounds kind of like a chicken and the egg thing, like what came first, right? Right. My chicken laid her egg. Well, I don't know. Whatever it was, whatever caused it, whatever started it, we're here now and it's wonderful. Yes, and 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 but we need to make sure that we sustain those institutions and expand them across the globe so that more and more people can enjoy uh, the progress that that uh, people uh, living in, if you will, the richer, wealthier countries of the world do. Yeah, I really hope we can maintain those institutions because I think it's necessary. Can you talk to us a bit about the end of famine and the end of slums? Uh, well, again, yes, the end of famine. One one of the um, One of the motivating features of a lot of environmentalism, what I call ideological environmentalism in, from the mid-20th century on, was the notion that um, it was taken from uh, uh, Malthus uh, uh, when he was, in his essay on population, where he was basically saying that uh, human beings would always breed more humans than they can produce food, and therefore there would always be some portion of humanity uh, starving to death essentially. And people like Paul Ehrlich uh, back in the mid 20th century, 1968, revived this notion and argued that, that it was simply impossible for the planet to support. Uh, in, in fact, he would say, everyone knows you couldn't possibly double uh, world population at all. And, uh, and therefore, uh, massive famines were going to occur. And he absolutely said in the 68 version of the book, Hundreds of millions of people are going to die in massive famines in the 1970s, despite any crash programs that might be embarked upon now. Flat out said it. Didn't happen. Um, And why didn't it happen? Well, among other things is a a person uh, whom I got to know, and it was one of the great privileges of my life that we became kind of friendly, uh, Norman Borlaug came along. And he is a, was a, a, a plant breeder, if you will, a genius plant breeder who created the Green Revolution, essentially. He was the guy who figured out how to 
uh, one way you put it is instead of having one blade of grass grow in a, in a place, you have three bl- blades of grass grow in the place, and that grass happened to be wheat and corn. And so he jump-started the Green Revolution, which essentially um, uh, created the situation where we produced vastly more food uh, than the population grew. And what, what's interesting there are a lot of interesting things about that, but, but we also talk about that in the book, is, is that uh, modern agriculture is becoming so efficient that we are now sparing more and more land for nature. We are at peak farmland on, on planet Earth at this point, and, uh, which is a great trend because that means we can set aside more land for other species on the planet to flourish over the course of the coming century or so. So what happens is that essentially uh, the, the amount of food available for people has, has dramatically increased uh, and the amount of land to grow it on has, very, has only increased slightly. The famines didn't occur. Uh, is, that, is that responsive to your question or have I missed something? Yep, that's perfect. So the third trend in your book details whether or not we're going to run out of commodities. Um, In the 1980s, economist Julian Simon famously bet with Paul Ehrlich, who you've mentioned, on a mutually agreed upon measure of resource scarcity over a decade. Simon asserted that resources were plentiful, which would be reflected in the relatively low prices where Ehrlich believed that the world was going to experience desolation because we were draining the Earth's resources, which if he were correct, would be reflected by raising prices. You've written quite a lot on the peak of oil and the notion that we're running out of oil and a lot of other resources. So can you explain this whole debate? Because for me, I feel like I kind of get it, but I also am in this place where it doesn't make too much sense. And importantly, can you tell us about what your book shows in relation to this? Right. Well, I mean, the, the notion, of course, is, is that resources are fixed, that, you know, we only have one planet and there's only so much of iron or oil or coal or magnesium, the non-renewable resources. We, we're not going to get more of those unless we move off the planet and get them elsewhere, right? So that was the notion that we have a finite number of resources. The problem with that note, and, and to a certain extent, it's, it, it's, it seems intuitive to most people. You know, you can only have so much oil and only so much coal, and once you start using it up, it'll go away. We won't have it anymore. And, and that does seem intuitively obvious. The problem is, is that people forget ingen- human ingenuity over time. Is, is that what we are very good at and getting increasingly better at is getting more value out of less and less stuff over time. People don't want coal. What they want is to heat their houses or, or produce electricity. People don't want steel. They want to hold, hold up buildings. or that, you know. Basically, we want services from the stuff that we, the materials that we use. And so one of the, uh, the, the, the notion was uh, that we're going to, that Ehrlich had is was clearly the case that we're, we're using up so much stuff that we're going to run out before uh, the end of the 20th century and there's going to be a terrible crash. And this was also part of the argument that the folks who at MIT who put together the book The Limits to Growth were making the argument of. 
But Simon was counting on Julian Simon. It was a person I, I also got to know, and it was a great uh, ornament to my life. Uh, Julian Simon, who did I say? Now, anyway, Julian Simon, uh, he uh, was concentrating on human ingenuity. He basically said, well, sure, every human being comes with a stomach, but they also come with a brain. And his argument is that uh, that ingenuity would always be able to find new resources or new ways to use resources that would uh, outstrip, if you will, their decline. And uh, the price system is extremely good for that. Markets are extremely good for that. So he had this bet, which you were talking about, where he let Simon pick the commodities. He said, pick whatever commodities you would like. I mean, where he said to Ehrlich, sorry, please, please, uh, you pick Ehrlich, you pick the commodities, and we will uh, take a bet. I'll bet you anything about those. And the bet was set at $1,000. So Simon, Simon, sorry. Uh, Ehrlich picked five metals that you could buy um, uh, on stock on commodity exchanges, and so, um, said in ten years uh, the deal was if the prices went up, uh, Ehrlich would get the money for the extra over the prices. If the prices went down, then Simon would get the money uh, when the prices went down. Now note the upside of this: if Ehrlich was right then there was no end to the upside. Prices could double, triple, quadruple, whatever. Whereas uh, the most money that uh, Simon could get was $1,000, if that meant if, if all the prices went down to zero, which, of course, they didn't. In any case, at the end of uh, the 10-year period, Ehrlich sent him a check for uh, $567 I think $67 and some change, which indicated that the price of the goods that Ehrlich had picked had gone down by almost 60% over that period of time. Uh, Simon clearly won that bet. And then, and then what uh, my colleague, Marion Tupi is working on uh, is what he calls the Simon Abundance Index. And we have a little chapter about that. He's actually working on a book, which is going to come out, uh, I, hope, I hope, next year, outlining this. But also looking at 50 commodities over, and he picked 50 because those are the ones that you have the longest time series for uh, in the data. And, you know, they're fuel commodities, metal, uh, metal commodities, minerals, and uh, food. And what he finds is that in real dollars, that is, you know, uh, inflation-adjusted dollars, the price has gone down. Uh, since 1980 by, I don't know, 35%, something like that. But but if you, if you look at how much labor, how many hours a person has to put in to obtain the same amount of those resources, what he calls the time price of money, human labor, human time and devotion to, to obtaining the resources, and time prices, they've gone down 65%, something like that. Uh, and what we do know is that when prices are going down, that means that things are becoming more abundant, not more scarce. That is absolutely amazing. I like the sound of that. I mean, when I think about this, I can imagine that there are quite a few doomsday scenarios and projections of what the future will look like from people like Ehrlich. Do you have examples of stuff like that? Um, a lot of them are uh, what's interesting is a lot of them are now uh, focused on on climate change and there are people 
uh, who are, oh, I can't remember his name right now, but um, who wrote a book two years ago, basically saying that the apocalypse, the climate apocalypse is upon us. Uh, it was a very popular book. And, uh, and the truth of the matter is, and I'm going to be blunt about it, is that climate change is a problem. We don't focus on that in the book because, as we're, we're trying to do in the book, is not ignore negative trends. We just assume everybody already knows about those. So we, we don't need to focus on those. In fact, we explain our selection mechanism for the trends that we do look at. But climate change is a problem. And unabated, it, would, it will be causing uh, problems for humanity by the end of the century, if not before. But that's the thing. I don't think it's going to be unabated. We already have the technologies needed to, and, uh, to, to address the problem. And human ingenuity is going to solve that problem as well. Yeah, actually, I do think that even if negative things occur like that, that we can solve them because we just have to think about them. Plus, the whole idea that more humans means more brains means more brains that are having more ideas. Well, the, there are all these scenarios out there, and you know, and again, uh, it's not in the book. So, but if if people would be interested, you can certainly find find where I've been writing about this. Uh, for for t- some time, is that um, the, the one of the, there are these called integrated assessment models that are out there, where basically what you're trying to do is put an econometric model on top of a climate model and figure out what the world is going to look like eighty years from now. Now, everyone knows econometric models and climate models are not exactly precise, but if you taking taking those and they're, they're taken seriously in the field, uh, it turns out that uh, assuming a really pretty bad worst case increase of I don't know four degrees centigrade, which would not be good at all. I mean, the difference between now and an ice age is about four degrees centigrade. Uh, uh, people living in twenty one hundred. Instead of living on $100,000 per capita, they would be living on a mere $90,000 per capita. So climate change is not great, but it also doesn't mean um, the end of the world or the end of human flourishing, at least in that kind of integrated assessment model. I don't want to stand by it. I'm just saying that people are always trying to figure out the scenarios and figure out what things are likely to be. And it's it's really... It, it's um, it's it would be like how shall I say this? Imagine someone uh, in the United States in nine in nine, uh, nine let's say the year nineteen oh one, telling um, predicting that there would be um, computers, that there would be transatlantic airplane flights, that there would be. Uh, uh, the the average per capita income in the United States in real dollars would be something like $40,000 per person. If you were telling someone in 1901 that was going to be the case, they would go, you're you're crazy. (laughs) And I think that we stand in exactly the same relation in some sense or other to the future as well, is uh, the amount of wealth that's going to be created and the and most particularly the the amazing new technologies biotechnologies nanotechnologies uh, for example 
uh, and, and, and obviously information technologies that are going to come over the next 80 years or so that it's almost impossible for us to imagine. Yeah. I mean, I try to think about the future, but I can't even do it because, well, I can't even start to predict what it's going to look like because I mean, no one really has any idea, but I also believe that whatever comes along, we can fix it. And there's always that. We are getting better at it. Yes. We are. I mean, what, and I know this, you know, this is a, someone growing up in the 70s, and I'm, I'm an old Star Trek fan from, from the 1960s. And, I, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but if you watch old Star Trek, thing, they had these amazing things called communicators. They're basically, they're basically walkie-talkies. I, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy standing on a beach in Bali uh, FaceTiming with my wife uh, in the United States and going, oh, Star Trek could have, would have loved to have had this. So I'm kind of sad that we don't have time to cover all the trends in this book and talk about each one of them in detail. But I can assure my listeners that they are all surprising and all super interesting. I, for instance, was absolutely amazed to learn that the share of the earth covered by trees has actually been expanding significantly since the 1980s. Which trend is your favorite or which do you think is the most stunning of all of them? Um, that's, a, I, that's a good question. I, my favorite actually is, is the end of poverty. The fact that so many, fewer, so, so many people have been lifted out of abject poverty over the last two centuries, it's just uh, it, it it it's a great joy to my to me to, to know that. But uh, the ones that amaze people, I you know, the one you mentioned the tree cover. Most people think the deforestation is is uh, we're still losing a lot of trees, and in some you know in some places we still are. But the fact of the matter is, on a planetary scale, we've been increasing uh, the global tree cover. Uh, quite considerably, an area the size of Alaska and Montana combined since the 1980s. Uh, in Europe, the United States, for example, and in China, uh, the forests have been returning. Um, another one that people may not know, but we're living in a much safer world as well, because we hear a lot about natural disasters and, and uh, the costs of those and so forth. But the, the fact of the matter is uh uh, the, your chances, a chance of any human being on the planet of dying in a natural disaster has declined by 99% you have, uh, since the 1920s. And this, again, is because of wealth and technologies, uh, you know, being able to monitor the, the progress of a hurricane, for example, or building better buildings to withstand uh, earthquakes. Uh, have have dramatically dramatically reduced the the the, the human toll from natural uh, natural disasters over over the the last uh, century or so. Yeah, and I would say that that graph is particularly beautiful too to look at because it just makes me happy. The fact that less people are dying all the time that in no way can be negative. Well, I mean that's the other thing. I don't think that most people realize uh, that in, in around again 1900, 120 years ago, average life expectancy was something on the planet was something around 35 years, and it's more than doubled. It's now about 72 years, uh, and that's everywhere. And uh, that's an amazing testament again to the possibilities of human flourishing. Famine is uh, is is in retreat. 
we have a, a wonderful section on what's going on with infectious diseases and how much that has declined and how, again, human uh, interventions, uh, vaccines most particularly, have, uh, have, have driven a lot of, 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 of scourges like smallpox, measles, mumps, and so forth into the background. In fact, we've eradicated smallpox. How do you explain all of these trends, like in a quick summary? Yeah, I, I think I'll go back to my initial thing. The notion is that humanity two centuries ago lucked into the, the institutions that enable innovators uh, to prosper uh, from their inventions and then uh, gift us with uh, their ingenuity so that more problems the, the perennial problems of um, heat, cold, disease, famine, ignorance, and so forth have been uh, basically solved. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. I keep going back to the book just to look at the graphs as a little reminder. Oh, look how good we're doing. Look at this. This is crazy. <laughs> well, I, I, well, I have to say that the, the book designers did a fabulous job with it. I think it's a very, I think it's a very pretty book, honestly. And uh, we hope what, what people will do with it is that they will put it out on their coffee table and people, you know, when they have guests again, when we're allowed to have guests again, that they'll be able to sit there and go, isn't that a book? And they pick it up and go, oh, isn't that interesting? Another thing that I hope happens is, is that people, you know, will flip through it. You don't have to read it all at once. It's not that kind of book. The idea is, is that you can just delve into whatever you want. But then, you'll, you know, you read one of the, the, the trend chapters, you know, all 350 words of it. And then you go to a cocktail party or you know, the gym with a friend. And, you know, did you know that? And, you know, that uh, there are more trees on the planet, that uh, famine has abated, that, it, that we have great trends on the, the levels of education rising around the, uh, the planet, those kinds of things. What I'm hoping is that people will, will talk. I've, ha I've already had so many cool conversations relating to these facts, even the small ones, and later following up with, hey, if you think that that's cool, there's even more stuff like this. I will say that I think it's the perfect coffee table book. I think you're absolutely right about that. Well, It deserves to be on a coffee table for the content and the look of it. Well, thank you. So my final question to you is, what is one thing you believed at one point in your life that you later changed your position on and why? We've already touched on it, and that would be climate change. Uh, what happened is, is that when I became aware of ideological environmentalism, not the kind of environmentalism where we all actually earnestly want to make sure that uh, things improve, air quality, nature, that kind of thing, um, I, I uh, was highly skeptical uh, when uh, climate change became an issue. This was back in the 1980s when it first came up as a, as a, as a live discussion in, in scientific, economic, and political circles. And it, because I was skeptical of it, because it, oh, it sounds exactly of the same form as the other dooms that I've already discovered were not the case, that you know the toxic chemicals were going to give us massive cancer epidemics that we're going to run out of food, we're going to be massive famines, we're going to run out of oil and steel, and you know, we're going to run out of resources. It just sounded like the same sort of thing to me. 
And, and therefore, I just assumed that it was, and it was a mistake. So I, but I, you know, I've attended something like, I don't know, 16 climate change conferences, UN climate change conferences as a reporter and that kind of thing. And slowly but surely, I paid attention to the data. And uh, in around 2005, I publicly changed my mind and said, I think that climate change is going to be a problem. And I, ha- I have to say that this was not welcomed by some of my friends in the libertarian conservative community. Uh, some of them stopped talking to me for a little while, but they got over it. But no, I did change my mind quite pl- publicly about the, uh, the dangers of climate change. Yeah, that one makes a lot of sense. Personally, I have been going back and forth a little bit. I think it will be a problem, but I also think we have the ability to fix it. And I hope that we can start focusing on it sooner rather than later. I do think that it is something that people actually care about. So I don't really think we are at risk of failing that and not paying attention to it. One can always hope. We'll see. I I agree. And I think that 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 is going to be happening. Well, thank you so much for being on my podcast because this is so interesting. And it makes me feel so good about where we are as a human race and about where we can be in the future. And it also shows you what there is left to do, what we can continue doing every day to make the future possible and better than we could have ever imagined. So thank you again. I definitely will be talking about your book left and right whenever I get the chance. And I already have. So thank you. Well, there's no cliff that we're going to fall off of. You know, you hear these things where people go, oh, no, if, if we don't do something in 10 years, blah, blah. And that's not a cliff. It basically says, all right, things are going to get a little bit warmer than if we acted sooner uh, than they would be. But it's not an apocalypse waiting after 10 years. It makes me very optimistic. Thank you again. Well, thank you for having, uh, having me on to your show. And I, I hope that you found something, something that I said uh, of use to you. I, I do think that your generation is going to have an amazing future. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to everyone who listens, subscribes, and shares the Great Antidote podcast. If you would like to be on the podcast or have a guest in mind, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote@thecgo.org. We have some great things in store for you, and I'm really excited to be back, and I hope you are too. Thanks.